abandoned by the fleeing Iraqi army. But it's these images that have really shown... and welcome to Jihadi Recollections. I'm Jesse Morton, once an American jihadi propagandist that ran Revolution Muslim, a New York City-based organization that helped set the template and methodology for jihadist often online recruitment in the West. Here, I sit with experts, academics, activists, and the like to discuss the jihadi social movement, subculture, and radicalization and extremism writ large. Jihadi Recollections takes a deep dive into the jihadosphere, challenging conventional belief and painting a vivid portrait helpful for those interested in or tasked with understanding and combating the complex threat, radicalization, and extremism posed to the liberal world order, an order most have come to take for granted. Back to another issue of Jihadi Recollections. I'm here today with Dr. Alexander Malabu Hitchens, who is the research director of the program on extremism and a lecturer at the War Studies Department in King's College. He's also, interestingly, the author of a new book called Incitement Anwar al Awdaki's Western Jihad. Uh, and it is in publication now and is available for those that want to read it. Uh, today we'll be talking about that, and it's an interesting lens because the title of this podcast is drawn from a magazine called Jihadi Recollections, which was produced in an era that we'll be discussing today, an important era, particularly for those that want to study the evolution of English language jihadi propaganda, something that Alexander is an expert in. And so, Alex, I guess maybe we could start by saying thank you for giving us your time today, and can you maybe get a bit into to the book, your background, and a bit on why the subject of your book is crucial and important for understanding the movement, not just in the past, but also as we progress to trying to understand the problem that's posed by Salafi jihadism going forward. Sure. Uh, thanks, Jesse, uh, for having me on. It's a great podcast. Um, so I guess I'll start with um, how I ended up doing this. I was, um, I've been a researcher particularly on, on uh, extremism in, in the United Kingdom and in the West, uh, probably since around 2006, 2007. Um, and, you know, one of the first things I started doing was looking at um, mostly sort of Islamist activist networks uh, in the UK in particular, um, and also in the US and parts of Europe, but really a focus on, on the UK. Um, and that then kind of developed towards more uh, jihadi activism. Um, but there was this kind of name that kept coming up um, as I was in the forums and talking to members of these networks and, and reading their stuff. And this uh, name, Anwar Awlaki, kept emerging as, as a reference point. Um, so that was the first time around 2006 or 2007 uh, when, I, when I really came across him and started kind of paying attention. Um, and it became clear to me quite soon that uh, by this point, he'd actually, he was a full-blown jihadist, really. He'd, he'd um, translated key jihadist texts and endorsed them. So there wasn't a sort of mystery about who he was. Um, but there was no real mass knowing or understanding of him and the media hadn't yet covered him. But it was clear that he was doing something that hadn't quite been done before, which was making uh, jihadist ideology accessible to Westerners in ways that perhaps it hadn't been done before. He wasn't the first uh, you know, English-speaking jihadist preacher, um, but he was probably the most effective, uh, and he did that, you know, through a number of means that we can, of course, get into. Um, and so, the initially, I actually ended up uh, writing a couple small reports about him, but then that that ended up becoming a PhD, 
and the PhD has has become has become now uh, the book after after many many years, probably too many. Um, and the book kind of tries to do a couple things. Um, it's not a biography of Aulaki, really. Of course, there's there are elements in it that explain some some sort of key moments in his life. But uh, the best kind of biographical accounts have already been done. You know, particularly Scott Shane's Objective Troy uh, book was really the, the, the kind of uh, the best contribution uh, in that regard. But so mine is more of an intellectual history of Aulaki. So the first main goal of the book is to uh, trace his own ideological roots and explain his evolution from this kind of mainstream uh, and for want of a better term, and I know it's not the best way to describe uh, people in these situations, but moderate Muslim uh, preacher in the West. So, you know, this was a guy who in the 90s was one of the most popular English speaking imams and preachers um, in the world and certainly in America and Britain. Um, and so I trace him from that period right up to his death as a member of Al Qaeda in Arabian Peninsula. And I look at really his his output throughout this time and I trace how it evolved and how it moved from. Uh, my argument essentially is that it moved across a spectrum of, of Salafi thought, really from some kind of sort of Western American uh, Salafi activism uh, onto Salafi jihadism. So that first part of the book really explains and it provides that intellectual history, along with trying to explain how he took all these concepts uh, from Islamism and jihadism that really, you know, were developed for initially for kind of post-colonial Arab societies and cultures, and he took those ideas and he he made them relevant to Westerners, and he made them speak to Westerners in a way that hadn't really been, arguably at least, hadn't been done before. So the book tries to explain that too, in the, in the process of explaining his own uh, trajectory, his ideological trajectory. Uh, the the next sections of the book actually take a form of three chapters, where I look at a specific case of individual. Uh, in the West, who was influenced by Allahi to conduct or uh, or plan some kind of jihadist activity? So I look at Zachary Chesser, I look at uh, Major Nid Al Hassan, who was the uh, Fort Hood shooter, of course, and Umar Farouk Abdul Muttalib, the infamous uh, underwear bomber. And, I, and each chapter focuses really on what role I could identify um, Allahi and his work played in the choices these individuals made. Um, and finally, the book ends with a chapter on his kind of posthumous influence. So after his his uh, death by drone uh, in Yemen, um, I look at sort of how we can still see his influence ringing uh, through uh, jihadi activism today. And I, you know, I put a lot of, or I give him a lot of credit for the success ISIS has in the West, um, and explain essentially that a lot of the stuff ISIS said to, you know, sort of coax Westerners to their cause had kind of already been said by Al-Laki and arguably was, was kind of lifted from, from, from Al-Laki. Um, yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, go, I mean, that's, yeah, so that's kind of the, the overview of the book. Um, but yeah, go ahead if you want to ask me any more. Oh, yeah, no, that's a very, it's a, it's a very interesting outline because it gives it a real life practical sort of example of the resonance, I think, of ideas. Um, I guess as a former sort of uh, person who was in some ways also emulating Aul Aulaki's um, adaptations uh, as we as we went forward, um, it is kind of sitting back in retrospect, realizing how eternal ideas are and how serious ideas 
are in having uh, real-world implications uh, with regard to terrorism in particular. Maybe transitioning into the realm of ideology and why understanding it, why grasping the intersection between the ideology, which is a very contentious topic in radicalization studies. Um, what role do you feel ideology plays? And as a person who has been researching this for many years now, um, how important do you think it is to understand the nuances of ideology uh, with regard to being a competent researcher in the realm of extremism studies? Yeah, so, you know, looking at Olaki for so long, I, of course, um, became quite interested in how and why ideology um, gets people, you know, off the couch or gets them out of their comfortable lives and, and into very dangerous and, and often deadly situations. Um, and Alaki himself put great value in the power of ideas and, and how you move from ideas uh, to actual action. Um, and I think, look, in the end, what, I, what ideology can do is make sense of, of an individual's situation if it presented to them in an effective way, which I argue Alaki does. Um, if you're able to offer someone an explanation for the problems that they face personally, as well as the problems maybe the community that they uh, identify with, face, um, if you can offer them very clear explanation for why they face whatever problems they do, if you're able to help identify for them the causes of these problems, if you can, if you can point out who and why is to blame, or rather who and what is to blame, um, this is again what ideology at its best can do. But not just that, it's not just identifying the problem whose fault it is, that's a very important first step. But it also provides uh, a sort of blueprint for how to respond, um, a, an organized way of, of fixing the situation that you find yourself in. And it also provides a, a future um, sort of uh, to, to, to fight for, or a sort of future uh, picture uh, for the individual. So it's not just, uh, here's your problem, here's how you fight against it, but also here's what you're fighting for. Um, so it gives this image of a future that is achievable if you were to follow the tenets of the, of the ideology. And, and in this case, of course, if we were to break that down for the jihad movement, to some extent, you, would, you could very simply say, um, you know, the jihad movement essentially achieves all of these things through its ideology by telling us uh, why um, Muslims are in the situation they are in, who, who is to blame, what are the, what, you know, what do our texts tell us about how we respond to this? And what is what can we achieve if, if we go this way? And, and, you know, so we could say, you know, the answer the first question would be in some way or other, you know, Western nations or, and, and secular uh, powers, both in the Middle East and, and in, in the West, um, as far as who the problem is. Um, and what the problem is, is that there's a wide ranging conspiracy to destroy Islam and Muslims uh, being sort of overseen by these these powers. Uh, how should we respond? Well, we have a divinely sanctioned violence through jihad. Um, that has been shown to work in the past, at least the, the claim they make. And, you know, what, where, where will this take us? What is the way out of this? Um, some kind of Islamic state, some type of society governed by the laws of, uh, set out in the Quran and Hadith by, by God. Um, so this is the kind of very basic overview of what the ideology says and why it works. Because it, what, now, with Al-Laki specifically, we have an individual who takes this ideology. It's, it's one thing to give someone all those messages. But it doesn't necessarily take hold or take root unless you can make those messages really resonate 
uh, with the person or the people that that specific geographic location you're, you're addressing. So what Alaki was able to do was take all these ideas and these threats and these problems and make them relevant very much for, for a Western audience. So for example, you know, we can, you can make a claim that there's a war on Islam taking place. Um, you know, after 9-11, you could say, you could point to Iraq or Afghanistan or, or Israel-Palestine and, and say, you know, here is evidence of a war in Islam taking place, all this military action, Muslim civilians being killed. And, you know, if you're living in Afghanistan, you've got bombs dropping all around you and, and your family, you know, being pulled out of the rubble, maybe not so hard to sell this idea of a war in Islam, whether or not it's legitimate. Um, but for a Westerner, that's a different different kettle of fish. It's, it's not as easy to sell this idea of, of threat or imminent threat because it's just not really obviously there. So someone like Awlaki has to bring that war on Islam idea home for his audience. He has to put it onto their front or, you know, onto their front doorstep and say, actually, it's not just these conflicts happening hundreds of miles away uh, that prove the war on Islam. There are things happening in your life that you may not even be aware of um, that are, are actually showing you there's a war in Islam. So um, he'll take examples uh, of things that he knows are in the news or are getting people's attention and say, you see, there's a war in Islam taking place in the United States as well, or in Europe, for example, the Muhammad cartoons being a classic example of, of him showing examples of, of sort of uh, more close to home examples of, of a war on Islam. Um, and what's also important to keep in mind, guys like Al-Laki and, you know, sort of social movement leaders like him, what they do is they don't just exploit pre-existing grievances. We often hear, you know, people have a grievance that they want to react to. And in the ideas and these movements, allow, you know, give them that opportunity to sort of uh, react to those grievances. Guys like Al-Laki were also very effective at identifying grievances for individuals who hadn't noticed them before. Uh, so helping people view events in a new through a new frame of understanding and saying, you know, um, you know, if you see uh, in America, for example, something like uh, discussions, uh, one of the big sort of uh, main kind of debates after 9-11, uh, when everyone all of a sudden kind of turned around and started asking, you know, what is this? What's Islam? Because, you know, what's what people often forget, and, you know, some people are too young to remember, um, is that, you know, before 9-11, it's not like Islam was not a topic of discussion in the West, really. It was not a political discussion. It, was, it wasn't something that, and in fact, I would say a lot of people didn't know anything about it. Um, so when 9-11 uh, happened, you had this kind of uh, explosion of interest, uh, you know, in the religion. And, you know, uh, one of the big discussions was, can we you know, and whether or not this was a question that was framed correctly is another question, is another issue. But can we find in Islam uh, a so-called moderate or mo mainstream Islam? And is that the response to jihadism? Should we respond to extreme Islam with moderate Islam? And there was a lot, you know, you'll remember and, and many listeners will remember how this and, and still continues today to be a discussion. Let's empower the so-called moderate Muslims or the mainstream Muslims against these extremist fringes. And what al you know, and that was a debate that any Muslim who was paying any attention to the news after 9-11, in particular in America and in the West, would have been aware of. And I don't think would have necessarily had a big issue with. But someone like Awlaki can take that and actually prove there's a war on Islam. Uh, how do you prove there's a war on Islam? By uh, taking what seems to be a debate about helping mainstream Muslims uh, gain more influence. Well, he says, actually, this attempt to present a moderate Islam, this attempt to define a mainstream Islam, is itself 
a component of the war on Islam because it is an attempt to idea to transform Islam into something that is no longer Islam, to take away key components. This is the Awlaki argument to take away key components of the religion, like jihad, most importantly, um, or like the kind of more uh, you know intolerant components of the religion. Uh, that attempts to do that, or actually attempts to weaken, defang, and essentially transform Islam into something that uh, is not recognizable. And that itself is proof of the war on Islam taking place. And this is the classic example of Awlaki taking a Western discussion, a Western debate, framing it with the war on Islam, asking people to understand it as part of the war on Islam at a time when perhaps they wouldn't have. So it's not just about taking pre-existing grievances, it's about developing new ones. And he was extremely effective at doing that and taking you know, all these components of the ideology and making them speak directly uh, to Westerners. Very good. Thank you for that. I mean, he is such a fascinating figurehead because in a sense, if you think about propaganda, it's based on myth and, and archetypes. And I think that Anwar Auruki was the archetype which set the template uh, upon which a lot of those effective virtual plotters or whatever you want to call them that traveled to join ISIS, almost all of them were impacted by his message. And when him and Samir Khan traveled to Yemen to join Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, it really was the first example of people who are active in the West in a movement, jihadist aligned movement, traveling abroad and betting with uh, jihadists overseas and then being able to disseminate their message back. Uh, and it is a template that really proved uh, harmful uh, under uh, the so-called caliphate of, of ISIS. But it is important, I think, to understand the nuances of ideology for another reason, too. And this is a totally different sort of subject or sidebar. But when you look at how journalists and um, activists, even, if you will, uh, cover the trajectory of Aldaki. If you don't really understand that a translation of Yusuf al Uari's, you know, constants of jihad is in a sense a support for Al Qaeda far before this individual was incarcerated in Yemen temporarily and was able to be released from jail and then is able to be hosted on, and you talked about it, uh, I think. Uh, in a recent uh, presentation with Scott Shane at, at, at Program on Extremism, where you were able to listen to him being beamed in from abroad to a mosque, you know, yes. you're talking about Cage and their and their and their annual uh, relief of the prisoners event that they used to have back in the day, and a lot of times it's covered as if uh, Al Aurekis' narrative of victimization has actually is is so representative of the susceptibility to radicalization in the general um, activist Muslim community. Uh, that they themselves blame Al Aurekis' own radicalization on U.S. foreign policy, mm -hmm. on and they point to some of the moderate positions that he held prior to 9/11, and, and 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 some of these other things. And he had a lot of things going on in his personal life and his background and whatnot. But if you only pay attention to what is discussed uh, in the mainstream, and you reference that as you begin to develop your skills as a researcher. And you don't dig deeper and go into the primary source collection. I think Aulaki is a perfect uh, representation of what can go horribly wrong in understanding extremism without being there and seeing what extremists say about themselves or actually, in fact, talking to extremists. And do you think that uh, in your history without Aulaki, I know uh, I remember uh, when we uh, had spoken in the past and talked about the old pal talk rooms yes. and the era of the charismatic preachers and the Asrar al-Mujahideen, you know, <laughs> protective encrypted uh, software and things of this nature. If a person's really not able to dive deeply in, do you think it 
is something that can really impact scholarship. I mean, and, and, and one more point, like Alec termed the, coined, coined the phrase the Rand Muslim because yes. of the recommendation of going with the moderates when that was the stream. Yes. He was really able to play off of the research community and the think tankers in a way that allied uh, and, 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 and fit the objectives of the jihadists. So I, yeah. I know that there's a lot of different points there, but I think that my, my ultimate question is, how important is it really to get a grasp, not just of the ideology, but to get your hands dirty and dive in? And can you tell us a little bit about the, the, the methods that you had to go through in order to get sure. an insider's look? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, the book is, you know, pretty, pretty reliant um, almost in, t in terms of its analysis of al-Laki, almost entirely reliant on, on primary sources. There's a couple of reasons why, of course, it's important to go to the primary sources. One, it gives you the opportunity, and this would be, you know, I suppose advice for, for young researchers, it gives you opportunity to, to put your voice in the research. It gives you opportunity to give your ideas rather than tell us what others have made of, of something. You need to listen to it to yourself and see what do you make of it. Maybe it's something different than, than what other people have told you. So you've got to do that. That's not to say you shouldn't augment it all with secondary source and what other people think. It matters a lot. But if you're going to have any impact um, and, and it really you know, enjoy what you're doing, you're going to need to listen to it for yourself and see if you agree with other people say or not. Um, and, you know, back when, you know, when I was doing this in, in the 2000s, um, I mean, I was going to say it was easier to get the primary source, stuff, but I'm actually not sure because this was before really social media when, when everything was available in the way it is today. But um, it was really the first, you know, the big thing the Internet did for research, well, for, for jihadists as well as for researchers, is it made it very easy uh, for them to connect with each other, but also for researchers to monitor them without them really doing much to stop it because they weren't really thinking about it back then. Um, so you were able, you know, Alaki was, you know, one of the things he was known for was kind of using and harnessing the latest communication technology and usually stuff that was developing or emerging online. Uh, you know, YouTube, of course, uh, starting up his own blog in 2008. And you mentioned PalTalk, interestingly. I wonder how many of your listeners will even know what it is, even though it's still around and it's still used by jihadists even today. Uh, Abdullah Al-Faisal uses it. Essentially, it's just quite basic uh, chat room uh, uh, platform that has a kind of text chat, but also audio chat. And really, that's it. And, and they, you know, they set up, you set up a group in there where you can kind of control, be, be the administrator maybe, and, and give the lecture and people can listen and, and ask questions. And Alaki delivered a couple of his lectures this way, this kind of interactivity he was offering, you know. It wasn't just you were downloading a lecture and listening, but you were sitting in the, almost in the virtual room, you were able to ask questions. You were, it was that next step of, of connection that people were able to have that they never did before. And that's, important as far as getting people mobilized is getting them a sense of having some kind of involvement beyond this sort of just downloading something and listening to it. Alaki was very important there. And, and it gave, so for researchers, you know, we could go on to Paltong, we could record the lectures. Um, again, like I said, they weren't really hiding uh, what they were doing. Um, and, you know, so it, getting all that stuff really helps you make up your own mind and, and give your own voice uh, to your research. Um, as far as, and yeah, I, I think, you, you made the you use the term Rand Muslim. Yeah, that that comes off the back of what I was mentioning. That uh, his argument about this attempt to sort of weaken Islam by by reinterpreting it was based on his reading of a couple of Rand reports uh, that were you know that were basically trying to explain what you know trying to define moderate Islam, which perhaps was would, would have you know is is in hindsight a mistake anyway. Um, 
and and he yes, this term random Muslim became a very popular term to describe essentially Muslims who were selling out to the West and who you know because they were either too scared or because they they um, were forsaking their religion were essentially um, adopting you know Western ideas and, and about Islam and yeah this term random Muslim emerged. But so what, what the primary sources allowed me to do with with Alaki was to help contribute to this question or give give my answer to the question of why did he go from you know in you know one of the most influential uh, mainstream islamic preachers in the united states you know very influential as well as as where he was you know in terms of not only his work but his uh his where he where he was you know he was at the dar al-hijra mosque uh in northern virginia one of the most influential important mosques in the united states you know he had platforms of, of real influence uh, he went from there to to Al Qaeda in you know in the in the space of less than, than a decade. Um, so why? You know, and yes, some of these. And what I will start off by saying is, anyone who who gives you a a very straightforward and clear answer about how and why someone becomes radicalized is someone I would advise people to to be wary of because anyone who's giving you that kind of, is, is 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 selling you short because there isn't there isn't going to be one answer. There isn't going to be uh, a very a, a neat and tidy explanation about why someone makes these decisions, and in fact, the individual themselves often don't can't give you that. That in fact, sometimes they're the worst person to explain their own actions. Um, so I don't attempt to provide the answer about why Alaki ended up becoming an Al Qaeda member and, and recruiter. Um, what you should all, all usually try to do is is try to get a sense of the different factors that come into play. And usually those factors are something along the lines of ideology certainly is somewhere in there, personal experiences, um, negative as well as positive, uh, and also wider geopolitical events that, you know, push and pull people. Um, and usually it's, it's a, a combination of these three things and very often pure timing and sort of serendipity. And I think Aulaki kind of can be explained in this way. And um, so essentially, my argument is Al-Laki started out as a kind of light, you know, lightweight Salafi. Uh, he didn't get in depth on studying uh, creed, issues of creed or, or issues of law. Um, he didn't get involved in the so-called Islamic sciences, you know, the, the in-depth scholarly discussion and debate about Hadith and, and all that and, and Quran and all um, so he, 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 but at the same time, he did present physically as a Salafi. He dressed like one. He generally was happy to be in the milieu of Salafism. He, you know, he was uh, wary of um, applying any kind of critical thinking or, or reasoning to religious interpretation, which is a classic uh, Salafi trait. Um, uh, but he, he was not what we would describe as a quietist Salafi. He was not someone who said we shouldn't be involved in politics. We should only uh, be involved in study and take our line from the Saudi uh, sheikhs. He was what we can some categorize it roughly as an activist Salafi. He was, a, he was someone who presented as a Salafi, who, who generally interpreted Islam through the Salafi frame uh, or, or, or framework. But um, also was happy, very happy to um, fuse that with very key elements of Islamist thought. And, you know, when you look at the Salafi jihadi movement, there's an argument to say that essentially what you're looking at there is some kind of fusion between Salafi theology and Islamist ideology and Islamist activism. Those things can fuse and create a whole different bunch of 
things. They can create a protest movement, they can create a political party, uh, or they can create a jihadist movement. Um, and so in Alaki's case, we see someone who really uh, was even from the start, so late 90s, in the work that's considered to be his mainstream work, would be quoting Said Qutb, for example, right? And for a, for a quietist Salafi, that's a, red, that's a major red flag, right? For a Salafi to be out there uh, using uh, quotes from, from, from a Muslim Brotherhood ideologue, uh, former leader, um, is, is, a, is a strange thing to see. Um, so, for example, in his early work, he often um, relies on the Qutbist interpretation of Jahiliya, arguing that uh, any society that exists uh, today that is not run by, by Sharia law can be considered a Jahili society. That, that is um, a pretty um, clear indication of kind of ideologically where he was. He didn't say that we should fight jihad against those societies, which is what a jihadist would say, but he certainly said that we should mobilize and protest against, against them. Um, also, interestingly, early in his work, there are signs of a sympathy towards interpretations of what we call suicide bombing, interpretations of, of those as actually martyrdom operations. And he would use, he would cite justifications for suicide bombings that only jihadists at the time were citing. And it, more specifically, Yusuf al-Uyayri, uh, famous works of his, um, where he justifies suicide bombing by relying on the story of the king and the boy. Um, I don't know if we have time to get into details of, of what the king and the boy story is, but suffice to say, it's one of the key stories um, in Islam that is used today to justify suicide bombing. And Awlaki was using that story in the 90s, you know, in the early 2000s. Um, so even before he openly supported Al-Qaeda, uh, there were signs there that showed that he was susceptible to moving towards that worldview if situations around him change. And that did happen. So going from ideology to kind of personal experiences, um, you know, what you see, you know, and the thing with, you know, if we look at Salafism as this, you know, if we were to break it down simplistically, perhaps into three categories, quietist, activist, which I've mentioned already, and jihadist, um, and my argument is he essentially moved from, from activist to jihadi. You know, wh when you're an activist Salafi, it means that your uh, approach to methodology, at least your approach to um, how to actually practice your religion, is influenced by the undulations of geopolitics. So whereas a quietist essentially ignores what's happening in the world, their practice, their, their, both their creed and their methodology, isn't, doesn't really ever change very much. And it's not uh, subject to the whims of, of politics. Activist Salafis open up their theology to um, the changes in the political winds, you know. So when 9-11 happens, in fact, you had a lot of cases of, of activist Salafis becoming jihadi after 9-11 because situations changed. And for Awlaki, the American response to 9-11 was proof to him that activism against America and against Western civilization was simply not enough. So we're talking about a guy that before 9-11 believed that the West was inherently a threat to Islam. He makes it very clear in his, in his early work that uh, America in particular, but Western culture, secularism, is a direct uh, and deliberate threat against religion and specifically against Islam. It wants to destroy Islam and it wants to destroy Islamic identity. But when 9-11 happens, he started seeing that threat as much more direct and more violent. Um, invasion of Iraq. Uh, abroad and, and Afghanistan, domestically his view of the Patriot Act and, 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 and kind of general American law enforcement and, and federal 
clamp down on, on Islamist activism in the, United, in the United States, in his view, proved to him that the war on Islam was becoming so immediate that his tactics had to change. And so he went from saying the West is a threat, you should participate in protests and, and activism to saying the West is a threat and you should fight fight jihad. And he was able to do that because he already was, whole, you know, he didn't have to make some huge ideological leap. Really what we saw was a slight augmentation um, of his pre-existing beliefs. So um, what I try to say is that we have the ideology, we have the situation that has developed around and the war on terror emerges. Muslims uh, feel more persecuted, more targeted. Um, and also we have his, uh, so we also have his personal experience of um, seeing Northern Virginian, uh, seeing the clampdowns on, on Islamic charities in Northern Virginia that were shown to be uh, funding groups like Hamas and Hezbollah. In his view, uh, that was a direct threat to Muslims. Um, and also possibly um, his involvement with the FBI um, who inform, who at some point he became informed were aware that he was involved with, with prostitutes um, throughout the, the, late, the mid to late 90s. There was evidence that he finds out that the FBI and the police have that he was um, regularly involved uh, with a brothel and actually mo even moving prostitutes across uh, federal lines, which uh, is a federal offense, or rather state lines is a federal offense. So these three things happened and they forced him to make changes um, in both his personal life and in his uh, approach to responding to the threat uh, uh, on Islam or the war on Islam. So um, you have to always try to see all these things together and try to, you know, make a, uh, something that makes sense out of that. Um, and, but more, you know, as you mentioned, I think you alluded to the fact that there are attempts to sort of offer a much more simplistic explanation uh, for Olaki's radicalization. And that is, there's a couple of them. The most popular is, yes, um, I think it was in 2006 when he when he went to Yemen. Uh, he went to Yemen in 2004. In 06, he was imprisoned uh, in Yemen for uh, almost two years. And this was likely, to some extent, at the behest of the, the United States. And there's a, a, one of the claims is this is what radicalized him: that before prison, you know, he was mainstream, moderate preacher. Comes out of prison, all of a sudden he's a jihadist. And this is this relies on the very simplistic explanation that. This one, a single negative experience can just make someone into a terrorist. And that's it's just a far too simplistic approach. And as you said, by the time he went to prison in 06, as far as I'm concerned, he made it very clear that he was a supporter of global jihadism. As you mentioned, he translated Constance on the Path of Jihad by Yusuf Al-Yayri, who was one of the most important uh, Saudi jihadist ideologues uh, around at the time. Not only did he translate the work, but he endorsed it. And not only did he endorse it and translate it, he also made it directly accessible to Westerners, not just by translating it to English, but by giving it reference points, cultural reference points that would have resonated much more with Westerners. So he'd already adopted jihadism before he went to prison. So that, that neat and tidy explanation just does, doesn't work. Others make the claim that actually it's because he got found out with the prostitutes that he went from being uh, a sort of moderate preacher to being a jihadist. Again, the idea that you go from being a normal, nice guy, a nonviolent person, to a, a global terrorist because uh, you got caught with prostitutes. It's just, a, to me, it's kind of laughable. And it just, it's just never that simple. Um, it may have influenced, it may have made him think he had fewer options in America. It made him think, maybe I have to leave the United States. My career as a preacher here isn't going to work out if this stuff leaks out. My credibility will be shot. I have to leave. And that may have set off a chain of events. But again, 
the idea that you can provide this single explanation is, is just not enough. But the book does focus primarily on his ideological influences, and it argues that when the war on terror began, he had already, you know, he, he had a set of pre-existing ideas about Islam, about the role of Islam, and about the threat that it faced from the U.S. and from the West. That really kind of influenced the, his reaction to the war on terror. His pre-existing ideas essentially did have that influence. And, and then we saw uh, what happened. But, you know, who knows you know, if some things didn't happen at, when they happened. It may never have happened. We may have, you know, maybe still seeing Al-Laki today on our TV screens, uh, you know, helping bridge the gap, as it were, if, if there is one between Islam and the West, you know. Very good. Thank you. That was very comprehensive. And it highlights the real conundrum of uh, research in the sense of identifying the complexities, not just with general human behavior, but particularly when you try to understand an individual particular ideologue. It is a very complex process. And I'm sure you've spent works of your years of your life uh, almost sitting with uh, Imam Anwar, so to say. So, yeah, I was uh, it was I was telling uh, you mentioned Scott Shane, uh, yeah. New York Times journalist, very also very important work. He's done a lot. He, on Al-Laki. he once told me he would um, he would give his car <laughs> to have a couple hours with Al-Laki. And he said maybe not his house, but definitely his car. Um, and I think I, I agree. You know, I said I would I'd certainly probably give my card to get a chance to sit down with him uh, before he was killed, because in the end, look, yeah, um, one of the mo one of the best books um, out there. That's uh, another kind of intellectual history uh, of a jihadist leader is um, called a quietest jihadi. It's about Abu Muhammad al-Maqdisi al by Huas Wagmakers. And there Huas was able to interview Magdisi, you know, and, and actually add so. You know, it's the one thing I sadly uh, couldn't do. Um, so I did have to just listen to every single thing he said and and do my best to make sense of it. Very good. Yeah. And, 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 and you bring up some very good and valuable points there. I want to try to talk a little bit about the future, maybe um, thinking about this complexity issue and then thinking about the need to study social movements, because what Al-Awdaki really did in, in an era when the whole world was grappling with the transition into like social media 2.0, so to say, or the interactivity that was made possible by Facebook, Twitter, and other platforms that were growing in popularity, was he tapped into that ability to create a mass movement or a grassroots movement that attached itself to a key ideologue. And so his lectures never would have uh, been as prolific as they were, were they not accompanied with you know, massive efforts to share them on YouTube and bump them through jihadist forums and to give them graphic design. And he had a whole team of people once he started his blog and went live before he transitioned into being active after being released. And he motivated an entire generation of uh, sort of keyboard jihadists and warriors. But I think a lot of what we see going on right now uh, with regard to the uh, state of affairs of extremism and the focus on far right wing extremism in the domestic Western societies, it, it, it sort of risks running some of the same mistakes we made with regard to addressing the jihadist uh, threat, um, particularly when you talk about your being able to differentiate between a quietist Salafist, an activist Salafist and that mix between sort of Ikhwan al-Muslimin politicized Islam and the fundamentalist interpretations. And then your Salafi jihadist, it really, to me, seems to indicate the need to understand proactively, not after the fact, 
the role that ideologies play and the way that individuals manipulate ideologies in order to, in Audaudaki's case, having known him, it was certainly a case of narcissism, and that would be an oversimplification for sure. But he loved the fact that he was creating adherence all over and, 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 and watching him resonate. And I can only imagine how happy he was to be joined up with Samir Khan in, 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 in Yemen and to, and, and to transition into a new phase as they saw it. But I mean, at home right now, I mean, over this past weekend, we saw a lot of like what could be described as a decentralized uh, sort of uh, movement uh, protesting uh, and in the midst of COVID going forward. And all of these uh, situations that we deal with as researchers or people that want to get engaged in countering violent extremism, it really requires you to understand the role that ideologies play, but also in shaping uh, movements that tend to have very similar topography and structures and and and, and rely on, on on key themes and narratives there's not a big distance between the grievance of the jihadist and the grievance of the far right for example there's very similar strains and and very similar ways of thinking and then there's very similar uh, demographics that they appeal to but the number one concern that I have thinking about this is that as we focus on far right-wing extremism I think we are also witnessing amidst covid a resurrection in the Middle East of sort of jihadist to some degree, the jihadists are back on the on the rise. COVID is a good uh, indicator for them that their end of times prophecies are still being fulfilled and that they still are a strong horse, even in a state of defeat. But when we look uh, when we look domestically at the situation, we have to remember the bigger picture and the war of attrition that the jihadists have been waging against us seems to me to have come to fruition. When I was a propagandist, we were very keen on making sure that anti-Islamic sentiment was high because we knew that that would create general hyperpolarization politically. And we knew that democracies that are hyperpolarized really can't function. And uh, we saw the state of the, the global arena and the work that we were doing in the West primarily as cementing the war against Muslims and Islam narrative, but also in helping to facilitate a long-term economically focused war of attrition against an empire that could only implode from within as empires had done from the past. And that's starting to resonate and resurrect itself in the narrative of jihadists currently, particularly amongst the ideologues, particularly amongst the thinkers and the strategists. So maybe we could, uh, Having said all of that, maybe you could extract for us some examples or some uh, some some thinking uh, about how we might be able to apply what we've learned from the realm of radicalization and extremism studies, particularly your own vantage, your own experiences, and you're obviously doing competent work in in, in this realm uh, on on the far right and the other the other forms forms of extremism that are you know sort of prolific right now as we speak. Is there is it important to not take your eye off the ball? Is it important to understand the intersectional relationships between extremisms in general, the symbiotic and reciprocal relationships between them? Um, and if so, how uh, how do we approach maybe there was a delayed uh, response to the jihadist threat? And I think the, uh, the assumptions that moderate imams, for example, or secular imams could do something might have done more harm than good. And I fear that we are embarking upon a similar stage with regard to the way that we address the threat posed by far right wing extremism. So anything that you could give to our young researchers and those that want to be involved in the CVE space um, along the lines of, of, of how we can we can do this work domestically while also paying attention to the bigger jihadist picture, which is this polarization we're witnessing is certainly part and parcel of their long term strategies and goals.
Yeah. Um, so, well, I, just to pick on one thing you said about the the uh, need for polarization, but you know, extremists uh, love nothing more than events that end up with more suffering of even their own in group because it, it, it draws the lines more clearly, right? Awlaki was a big fan of, well, he welcomed events like, uh, you may, well, the Muhammad cartoons I mentioned, but you may also remember, you know, the, the, the furor around claims that in Guantanamo Bay, a Quran was being flushed down the toilet. You know, there was global protests at this. And Awlaki, while also, while railing against this and saying this is proof again and again that there's a war on Islam taking place and a desire to destroy Islam in many different ways, you know, physically and ideologically. Um, he also always said that events like this are very important because they distinguish Haq and Batil. They, 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 they distinguish uh, truth from falsehood and they make it clear. Uh, uh, they demarcate the lines between the two sides and all extremists really would, you know, need that. Um, but more widely, you mentioned, you know, uh, this, the concept of social movements in particular. And, you know, one of the things that I know, and strategically, Alaki made a major contribution uh, to the to, to Al-Qaeda and, and actually more specifically to the Jihad movement or more correctly to the Jihad movement, um, and at least in the West. Uh, and this was, you know, his, his clearly he realized very early on that organizations, uh, while can be very they can be very effective, they can they can they can carry out things efficiently. They're also very vulnerable uh, that an organization can be destroyed and, and perhaps never return. Uh, specifically you know, an organization like Al-Qaeda, um, or it can be severely weakened to the point where it becomes useless. Uh, so he recognized early on that there's this major imbalance, of course, between the, the power and the force of, of the adversaries of the jihadists and the jihadists themselves. And how one way to overcome that was to stop relying on organizations or only organizations and to start conceptualizing Al-Qaeda really more as an organization within a much broader movement, specifically the global jihad movement. And what he wanted to do was not only make it clear to his audience in the West that um, it's, it's less about organization and more about movement. He also wanted to be able to create the, the kind of Western iteration of this movement. So one of the key things that, um, you know, so there's a lot of radicalization theories out there and we won't go through them now. But really, a lot of the radicalization theories, i.e. the theories that try to explain how and why people become involved in terrorism or, or in, in violent extremism or whatever you want to call it, uh, they actually really are, in many cases, they, they rely very heavily on pre-existing research and, and theories on how and why people become involved in social movements or in some kind of organized collective action. Um, and so, in fact, some of the best theories, you know, Quentin Viktorowicz's theory laid out on radical Islam rising is really, it's, it's inspired, as he says very clearly, by what's called social movement theory. Social movement theory, very, very briefly, is, is not really a single theory. It's a set of ideas and theories and tools that try to, to get, make sense of how and why people get involved in protest movements, uh, in collective action, um, how, and, and sometimes in violence, but all sorts of activism, from, from nonviolent protests right up to terrorism. Um, and a lot of people have argued uh, that the best way to understand radicalization and terrorism is to understand terrorism really as just another form of high-risk activism and is another form of contentious collective action uh, and that we should apply tools that have been developed to understand social movements to uh, the jihad movement. Uh, and so Al-Laki was very, very keen. And the book explains in detail how Al-Laki 
really actually followed a playbook, probably without knowing it, uh, because he just had the instinct for it. He followed a playbook that is followed by a lot of what we call social movement entrepreneurs, people whose job it is to basically sell a movement to an audience and get them to join and get them to take part. And the book explains the different uh, kind of methods that he uh, he used uh, to do that. And, and the, the key thing to keep in mind is really in it, so much of his work, both pre-jihad phase and post, almost none of it specifically mentions Al-Qaeda or says, you know, go and join Al-Qaeda. It's very keen to give the impression that actually there's a much wider movement taking place here. And actually, there is a much wider set of actions that you can take to be part of this movement. So after 9-11 or even before, but certainly after the, the, shortly in the years before and after, the idea what really about being part of, of jihadism was you had to, you know, get out of your house. You had to leave your country, most likely living in the West and go and join an actual terrorist group and fight for it in probably, you know, Afghan, Pakistan or, or maybe the Sahel or, or um, sub-Saharan Africa or East Africa, particularly. Um, there was this idea that that was the only way that you had to actually go join an actual group. Al-Awlaki said, actually, no. Yes, of course, ideally, if you could do that, great. But there were many other repertoires of action that we, we, could, we can call it, or social movement theorists call it, um, that are available to you that can still contribute to, to, to the movement and that can make you part of it. So now... All of a sudden, he was saying, you didn't have to go and travel to Afghanistan and take all these huge risks that few people want to do to be part of the movement. You could stay at home and do your part. And that might be, as, as you know, you meant in your own experiences, create propaganda, disseminate propaganda, do things that help further the movement in other less risky ways. Um, and that was a, a key component of Al-Laki strategically, getting more people involved. And that's very important because what it does is actually increases the pool of potential recruits. Uh, it, uh, it increases the, the potential of getting people from at a low level so, uh, and getting them to kind of move from low risk activism to high risk. And so you can use someone can kind of enter the movement at a sort of entry level position, as it were, by disseminating propaganda or, or doing things online or maybe attending a protest. And through their interaction within that, the milieu they've injected themselves in, start upgrading the, the kind of activity they take play, part in up until the point they perhaps actually moved to very high-risk activism like terrorism. And I think that was a really important move from Al-Laki because he, he brought in a lot of people who otherwise would never have felt part of it, some of whom did do that upgrade that I'm talking about. In one, in one of the chapters, my chapter on Zach Chesser, I explain exactly that he's a perfect example of this, someone who started as a propagandist online but soon realized he wanted to do more. He embedded himself in the milieu and he then moved on towards eventually trying to go actually join Al-Shabaab. Uh, before being arrested. So by presenting uh, Al-Qaeda and jihadism as a, as a social movement, he not only gave it more strength and, and made it more survivable in the West uh, than before, he also got a lot more people involved. And one of the key theories that I rely on is something called frame theory, which essentially argues that people get involved in, in collective action for on, the, on behalf of a social movement on the basis of a reality that they have adopted, which has been constructed by the movement itself um, through frames of interpretation. So most importantly, for example, in, in the case of the jihad movement, the war on Islam being the key frame through which they are asking their audience to, to uh, perceive all sorts of, of what are actually disconnected events. And so what I try to do is, is explain in the book all the different types of frames Al-Laki used and, and asked his audience to view the world through, which helped uh, influence their decisions. I don't say that, 
you know, the three case studies I look at, or in fact, any of the people who've been influenced by Locke, I, I never make the claim that he's the only reason they ever did anything. But I, I try to explain the role he did play uh, in making those ideas accessible. And the other part of framing is, again, it's not, as I mentioned earlier, it's not just about telling people the problem and, and constructing this reality. It's about making it make sense to their lives by, again, making, using the kind of language they understand, using cultural, social reference points that will make sense to them and make, you know, give examples of things that are perhaps directly impacting those people's lives. And again, Olaki, because of his understanding of the culture, was, was incredibly uh, uh, effective uh, at doing that. Um, so, yeah, he, he, he lowered the bar for involvement in the movement. And I think that, was, that, that is, is a very key strategic contribution uh, that he made. And, 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 you know, more generally, essentially the argument is that um, one of the arguments against or one of the sort of criticisms of the study of terrorism sometimes is that we treat it as this exceptional phenomenon. We treat it as this standalone thing that is uh, should be studied as on its own, terrorism. But actually, the truth is that it's not quite so simple. And really, what we need to do is, and what many people who use social movement theory argue, is we should de-exceptionalize terrorism and treat it really as another form of violent collective action, perhaps the most form, most violent. And actually, in that case, we have a lot of tools already at hand to understand uh, how and why people get involved, because actually we've been doing this since the 50s and 60s, really the 60s. Uh, the first real attempts and, you know, still influences radicalization theories to this day, were papers written in the 60s trying to explain why people were joining countercultural uh, counterculture movements and cults. You know, there's a big explosion of those in the 60s and 70s, particularly in America. So much of, of the understanding of how, why and how people join those groups is just has been reapplied, uh, sometimes uh, knowingly, sometimes not, uh, by people who are, are developing radicalization theories. And so the book kind of tries to early on explain why radicalization is a useful concept. Some of the theories are helpful, but actually they're really rooted in pre-existing scholarship uh, on how and why people join these wider movements. And today, you know, arguably you could say, you know, one of the main reasons jihadism still survives in America today and in the West today, despite this overwhelming military power that we have and the ability to crush these, these groups is, is because it survived, the ideas have survived. Um, and they've survived because they've been made relevant and they still made relevant today. Um, and, you know, things, you know, like the, the killing of George Floyd, for example, will be, and I'm, I presume probably already has been taken advantage of by groups like ISIS, um, who will so again, who will use this new event to re to repackage old information and old ideas, and you know, Alaki was would have you know would have been at the forefront of doing that today. I, I'm quite sure, um, and ISIS, you know, happy to take these events and ex and use them to explain why actually jihadism is correct, why it's the right response, why an Islamic state, you know, this wouldn't happen in an Islamic state because you know all races are you know theoretically equal in an Islamic state, even though in practice you know we know that that is is not the case. Um, Yes, I think that covers your, your questions. Yes. Is something I missed? No, no, no. It's, it's great. I really just want the listeners that tune in to understand and appreciate the difficulties and the complexities, but that there is a particular valuable evolution in the study of radicalization and violent extremism that I think your work really 
represents. And I do want to say that the link to your book will be posted in the, the summary of this, this episode, and we would implore all listeners uh, to purchase it. I read it in draft uh, form some time back. It's very good. I'm waiting to get my hands on it and the time to read it going forward, but I strongly recommend it having seen uh, a, an earlier draft. And also, I want to say that Alex is the research director of the program on extremism at GWU. Um, if there is an outfit or an, that is really putting forth a lot of work that is pressing things forward and, and, and doing some new and interesting things with a competent team, it's really worthwhile paying close attention to their publications. And I think that that, that that about covers it. There's so much that we could talk about. There's so much that we could dive into. But I really do appreciate your time. And I thank you for it. Uh, any closing words for us? Well, look, thanks so much, Jesse. Real pleasure to do this. And you know, as you mentioned, we, we've, you know, we've known each other for many years and, and uh, you saw early drafts uh, because you were incredibly helpful in, in, in our discussions. You know, I learned a lot from you and your experiences with him and, and your understanding of his ideas. And you're, you know, you, you're, you're quoted in the book uh, and the book is definitely all the better for uh, the discussions we had and the information you, you gave me at the time. So, you know, it's part of this book uh, is thanks to you. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And I look forward to staying in touch and we look forward to seeing more research in this realm. And, and hopefully we can uh, prevent any form of uh, resurrection that allows people emulating the Aldaki archetype uh, going forward to uh, be able to exert the types of impacts uh, that he left behind as a legacy. Because if there's one thing clear about his case study or his life, it is that ideas are eternal and that sometimes killing only makes them uh, more influential uh, posthumously. And uh, I, I think that the work that you do is really is really important for us recognizing uh, how those things can, you know, despite to having uh, better intentions and not uh, not intending things to come out that way, his connection to current attacks continues to just come up in almost every single investigation, if you really want to be honest about it, at least yeah. on the periphery. So it's really important that that we have work like this, Scott Shane's work, if you combine the two, for me, it gives you just a complete real breakdown on all of the intersectional variables that have to be considered if you want to try to study this thing with any form of academic rigor. And it is a challenge. And it is something that I think that you are one of the best representatives of cultivating uh, in this post-war on terror era. And so uh, I, uh, I, I look forward to continuing to watch your research unfold and continuing to learn from you. And I'm glad that we were able to contribute in some ways to yours. And we look forward to continuing to, to, to connect. So thank you very much for coming on today. Appreciate it. Thanks. Yep.